Good afternoon. Welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM, hosted by me, Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. This week, I have the pleasure of being joined by Adam Elliott Cooper, Well Kasim, and Ashna Sarka. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on. Activists, academics, scholars, big shots, a real big deal, a true of joy. Excellent to have you guys on. I couldn't imagine three better people to have on the show, actually. We tried to get one or two others, but this is a really great mix. I think we're going to have a great show discussing what else. Recent events in Baltimore, Maryland, um, kicked off uh, big time, subsequent to the death of 25-year-old African-American Freddie Gray. Gray died in police custody a week after being arrested on April 12th, having fallen into a coma that same day. Apparently, he was arrested while in good health. Um, He sustained severe, severe serious injuries to his spinal larynx within an hour of being arrested. And despite multiple surgical attempts to save his life, he never regained consciousness. Six police officers have been suspended pending an investigation. That death and the response it has elicited, protest, direction, uh, pro- protest, direct action, and outright confrontation with the police is part of a bigger picture, which includes the prominent deaths last year of Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, and Michael Brown, to name but three. In each instance, and these are just a small clutch of a far greater picture, the story remains the same. Police violence and assault against people of colour, what was seen with little cause and impunity, but now meeting, surprisingly, with large and unanticipated protests. That means that events in Baltimore this last week should be seen within a broader arc, which includes the protests across the United States last year, unfolding between August and late December, and which have been referred to in some quarters as a new civil rights movement. On today's show, we'll be discussing not only recent events in Baltimore and how they fit in with broader changes than African-American activism in the last several years, but also the political uses of violence and historical instances where it's proved outstandingly successful in achieving radical progressive aims. Adam, I'll start with you. Are these protests violent and does that matter? Um, I'm going to say awkward and say yes and no. Um, I think... In, some, in one perspective, you could argue that, no, these, these protests aren't violence. Um, they're one of two things. They are either um, acts of resistance against property, um, which many consider don't, not to be acts of violence, um, and they are acts of, um, and they are acts of um, aggression against, um, acts of resistance against the physical aggression of the state. So what people often argue is that violence is an act of physical aggression against a specific person or an act of physical aggression against the resources they rely on upon, for their livelihood, i.e. either bombing Libya or the, um, the fuel poverty of pensioners. These are, form- these are forms of violence, direct violence or structural violence. Many people would argue that the, the, what we've seen in, taking place in Baltimore and other parts of the United States are in fact acts of resistance, either against property or against the arms of the state. But on the other hand, we could take another perspective. Um, or we could take a, perhaps a Fanonian perspective. And what Fanon says is that when the coloniser... Um, uh, appropriates resources, appropriates land, appropriates um, um, appropriates um, labour. It always does it in a way in which is legitimised to itself. It always considers itself to um, occupy the ethical realm. It always considers its its access to all of those things to be something that is that is right and true. And so, therefore, any violation of that ethical well eth- of that ethical well- realm will be interpreted as violent. Um, and so, what Fanon says is that not in a prescriptive way, but in a purely descriptive way, that any, t- any way in which we kind of uh, violate the realm of the status quo, um, any way in which um, anything which attempts to decolonize the status quo um, will always be interpreted as a violation and therefore an act of violence. So therefore, if 
what is taking place in Baltimore and other parts of the United States are in any way effective, they are, by definition, violent. Well, um, I think I, I, I have to agree with um, Adam in, in terms of the conclusion that he just made there. Uh, the state, according to Weber, is the monopoly on legitimate use of violence, right? Um, and the, so then, by necessity... The, these uprisings ha- have, have to be violent in, in kind of relation to that, I would say. Um, the, 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 point, the point is that who gets to decide what type of violence it is, right? And the state is the one that has the monopoly on deciding which, what types of violence are acceptable, what types of violence are lawful, what types of violence are unlawful. Uh, the state says that all of its violence is lawful, the, that we, we've seen in the unaccountability of these, all of these police officers who are never taken to trial, hardly ever taken to trial, never convicted, um, that the state is willing to say, well, what they did was in, was in my name and therefore it's okay. It then turns around and says that these, these riots, protests and uprisings are violent, uh, that the people involved in them are thugs um, and that they that they're, they're trying to destroy their own communities or saying that they, came, they come from outside of the community to, in order to uh, try to uh, cause harm to it. Uh, and, and on one level, that's correct, right? That the point is to cause harm towards the state, in, uh, to cause harm towards its property, to cause harm towards uh, all, all those forces that stand aligned with white supremacy. Um, and so the, we, we have to say that I th- I think that this is violent, yes, but it's necessary uh, and it's more than proportionate in, ter- in, ter- in terms of what violence has been meted out by the state. So if these processes are violent, there's just cause, they're justified and they're a response to the violent murder of uh, Mr Gray. Ash, your thoughts? I mean, I would say that I have to agree with both of you, Kel Surprise. Um I'd say, yeah, they are violent. You know, there is a huge amount of anger directed towards um, police officers on the street and the National Guard, as I think is right. And there's a huge amount of... um, I I, I guess there's a strong emphasis on disrupting um, the exchange of capital by stopping shops from being able to function, the strike in Portland that's happening in solidarity today. And I think those things are counted as violent actions by a white supremacist capitalist state. And I think adding to the points you're making about the necessity of it and it being um, justifiable violence, I think you've got two ways in which it's necessary or justifiable. One is the social and economic context in which these things are happening. Um, The particular area of Baltimore where Freddie Gray was murdered has something like 30% unemployment An incredible amount of an incredible amount of uh, vacant homes, really poor schooling, really poor accessibility to healthcare. So you've got a economic context which seems to, you know, be designed to ferment this kind of anger and ferment this kind of um, inevitable outburst. And then you've got this um, an, an emotional affect of what it must be like to have to say to your kids, okay, so you might be beaten up by police, you might be murdered, do everything you can to avoid that, but that still might not be enough. Um, And I think it's really important to think about um, that 
this isn't mindless violence, it's articulate rage. Mm-hmm. And I think it's pointed at that reality. Mm. A lot of people this last week, the last 10 days, both sides of the Atlantic, but obviously primarily in the United States because this is an issue that's happened in, well, it's happened in Baltimore, Maryland. A lot of national commentary in the United States has said, Martin Luther King, you know, why can't they be like MLK? Why can't this be like the Black Civil Rights Movement? Instantly, Black Civil Rights Movement reaches its legislative climax 1964. A year later, we have What's Rights 1965. This year is their 50th anniversary. Um, here's a quote from uh, Dr. King. True peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And I think in a lot of discussions about violence, we don't talk about justice. So if somebody is violently murdered, you have to talk about a just outcome. What is a just outcome? It's accountability and a punishment, effectively, for the people that, you know, killed Freddie Gray. Um, And I think, yeah, often we're going to talk about this in a second. Um, Non-violence as compliance. Uh, This whole thing of non-violence and peaceability seems to me just a completely, it's kind of a a complete negation of discussions of justice. So, right, now that I've said that, you want to say, as something to Ash or... Well, I wanted to respond to the um, point you made about Martin Luther King. Um, Martin Luther King's stance of non-violence wasn't just a moral one born out of, well, change can only come through love, it can't, you know, not from hate. It was tactical non-violence. And his big idea was that with non-violent mass action, you can shame white America Mm. into, you know, coming face-to-face with their... um, you know, oppressive behaviours and changing it that way. And I think the question that all of us need to be asking is, can white America be shamed into doing anything? Once upon a time, the photo of Emmett Till having been lynched was a powerful thing and it shamed people. How many times have we seen videos of young black men being murdered? A video of seven-year-old Diana Stanley, Mm -hmm. who is shot as part of this, like, strange documentary drama, you know, about heroic cops bursting into people's houses while they sleep. How many times can um, can we see these things and expect people to feel shame where clearly there is none? Mm. I, th- I think that's completely right. I think one way of the... One thing that really exemplifies this um, reminds me of a conversation I was having maybe about a couple of months ago or something um, uh, with a rapper called Akala. And what he was saying was that... He was like, wow, this new film called Selma has come out, right? And it's all about... He, he described it as black, a film about black deference, right? About kind of um, black people kind of really being very calm and being deferential to like the whims of the state and so on and so forth. And this film was released at the exact same time as a film which celebrated white supremacist violence, right? This film about, God, what's it's about the, that sniper. God, remind me what it's called again. Shall we not even American, say its name? American Sniper. American Sniper, right? So you've got these two films coming out at the same time, yeah. right? One which completely celebrates white supremacist violence. It, it, the, in a, so it kind of, it makes you feel like not only can America not be shamed, it revels in its violence in ways in which make the idea of shaming that violence completely eradicated from the sphere of conversation because celebration of that violence is the only way in which we can in kind of engage with this, 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 these forms of these forms of these forms of violation these forms of imperialism well um f- for me i i would say that 
not the the so-called non um, tactics of non-violence, civil disobedience have their place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we've we've seen this in the resistance uh, in Ferguson, the use of um, non-violent civil disobedience tactics uh, against the police and the state um, to call into question their legitimacy. Uh, the the point for me is that this is the wrong time to be making demands for this kind of non-violence and civil disobedience. We're in the middle of an uprising uh, to to call for that uprising to be quelled in favour of uh, this alternative tactic just to me seems to miss the point. Mm. Um, This is a moment for black rage, not for uh, black civility. but I also want to kind of question uh, the the calling these acts non-violent. I, I think that uh, tactics of civil disobedience uh, are a form of violence in themselves, rightly so. Uh, I, I think that um, Ash mentioned uh, the solidarity strike. Um, the in in the the strike is a form of violence against capitalism. Uh, Walter Benjamin says this in the Critique of Violence um, that the, if if through t- tactics like civil disobedience and strikes you're disrupting the uh, capitalist's ability to um, turn a profit, then you're withholding from the capitalist, rightly so, um, the funds they need to kind of uh, live their life and so on. And it's the same thing with an. Uh, the state and white supremacy if you are withholding and forcing the state uh, through direct action uh, into a point of capitulation then your then your tactics are a ty- uh, are a type of political violence oh I thought I'd already gone you have already gone no I think this this oh, sorry because like, Ash has got these, this gorgeous bracelet so whenever she waves I think she's just there Oh, that's my way of signalling for attention. It's very nice. Like a cowbell. Um, So let's stick to this idea of um, non-violence and compliance. I think as an an activist, as somebody who... Excuse me. As somebody who's observed, studied social movements, I've tried to do it objectively right, it would seem to me that where you have the inclusion of peaceful peaceful tactical repertoires, right, that would be alongside... Is this this mic not working properly? This is meant to be the good mic. (laughs) I thought you guys gave me the good mic. God, only, only half of it works. Anyway, where you have a peaceful tactical repertoire, it tends to be alongside, where it's really effective, right? A violent one. Britain, 1832, before the Great Reform Act. You have peaceful demonstrations, chartism. You also have the Newport Uprising. You have people trying to literally get hold of arms. The same with the Black Civil Rights Movement. Same with anti-colonial movements. Every time, another one, MLK, Gandhi. We're talking about the pantheon of, sort of these sort of social movement leaders that are now pointed to by historically illiterate white people, yeah, it's Gandhi and Amal Kera at the top of the tree. Gandhi, the whole the struggle for independence, Indian independence, was such a broad, tactically broad movement. It encompassed terrorism, it encompassed political assassination. You name it, right? But that's just been wholly erased. So I'll come back to you, because you're talking about this idea of the state exercising a monopoly on legitimate violence, Max Weber, mm-hmm. probably the, one of the most important... Um, 
political scientists of the 19th, 20th century, right? So this is not some, oh, because a lot of people, a lot of people who aren't familiar with political science or not familiar with Weber, they'll be like, cool, that's a really audacious claim. The state has a monopoly on legitimate violence. Well, that's actually a politics 101. People will say that's what the state is. That's what defines the state. It exercises a monopoly on legitimate violence within a territorial defined, a territorially defined area, mm-hmm. right? So this idea of non-compliance uh, and violence. Do you think that uh, peaceful? There is a place for peaceful protest repertoires alongside what we're seeing. And then, as an addendum to that question, what's the what's the place? What's the role for people who are, people aren't people of colour? What's the place for white allies and what's going on in Baltimore, Ferguson, and of course the same stuff happens over here, right? Mm-hmm. Over here in the UK, what's the place for them? What's the place for two questions? Peaceful protest repertoire, white people. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Uh the place for peaceful, um, I mean, so-called peaceful protest uh, tactics and repertoires for me is um, when when you take this when you take this struggle uh, f- from what it is at the moment, this uprising, which unfortunately is going to be at some point quelled. Right? It's, um, this isn't going to be the revolutionary moment. I I don't think uh, that's that's sad, um, but. It's, at some point, people are going to go back to their daily lives, and that that battle has to uh, that that battle has to continue. I think in the everyday, um, it has to continue through resistance in workplaces. It has to and uh, continue in uh, the resistance of the unemployed uh, because unemployment plays a huge factor um, in the. I think in the current. Um, Uprising in Baltimore uh, and across the U.S., there's such deeply entrenched inequality um, that 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 needs to be addressed somehow, and 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 so the resistance needs to needs to carry in, on in that forum. Unfortunately, it's also going to have to carry on in. Um, Given that uh, lots of people have been arrested now and will be facing trial, there's going to be a need for communities to form their own kind of legal resistance and legal support resistance, which I think is a radical thing to do in terms of uh, court support, uh, crowdfunding the um, money for the massive um, bail bonds that have been <coughs> imposed on people. Um, so I think the, the, these these kind of... Uh, um, peaceful or fluffy um, types of organising are going to be necessary uh, and have their place. In terms of uh, white allies, I think that... um, I don't know. To be honest, I think that they can get involved at um, every level as long as they're they're not... um, as, as long as they're not silencing people, as long as they're not um, trying uh, coming in as uh, a white left saying, oh, well, this is actually about uh, these things. You've got your black issues to deal with, um, but uh, you, should, you need to see the bigger picture of the uh, class war between the proletariats and bourgeoisie, that that's... That, that's not what's needed, but what is, what is needed is uh, for people to come come along and support the actions to uh, to um, play their role through legal observing support and um, support structures um, because there, because there is a place for that and 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 white people have to take responsibility for the um, 
and for the for the systems that benefit them over um, the black population. Um, so yeah, yeah. Ash, um, so I agree with all the things that you've said. That coming up, what's going to be most important really is going to be legal support for the many hundreds who've been arrested and detained in Baltimore, and bail has been set at. Um, I mean, crazy levels. I mean, like, uh, someone's bill was set at half a million, someone else for $100,000. And those things are deliberate, and they are forms of violence. And I think um, this discussion about, you know, what is it that white people can do, I kind of struggle with this. And, you know, from one day I'm like, oh, I'll just put them all in a bin. And then the next day I'm like, well, no, actually, there are really useful things that that can be done. And it, you know, a huge amount of transformation is going to come from when white people say, actually, we cannot live in a system which dehumanises, demonises and brutalises our, you know, brothers and sisters anymore, we're going to say no more. And I think that will be a very powerful thing. Um, One of the things which I think will be really crucial will be what is the housing landscape of Baltimore like? What does it mean to take back these spaces? Um, In the most uh, privileged areas of Baltimore, there are about... 0.5% of uh, properties are vacant. In Mm. the most deprived, it goes up to 30%. And so I I think we need to ask ourselves these questions about what will reclaimed spaces look like um, in that kind of setting and how can they be used for long-term action uh, and, you know, ways in which they are targeting the very real... Um, material needs of people living in those areas. I mean, how how can you use these massive empty spaces to address these needs in terms of housing, education, food poverty, healthcare? Um, that's going to be really important. I think that uh, another thing that will be really crucial is rather than saying every time this has come out of nowhere, is actually emphasising a continuous history mm. of... Um, racial oppression not just in america but also europe as well and rather than just expressing surprise when it comes out on the streets is actually saying well this style of policing public order policing is actually um a day-to-day thing in baltimore it's not just when there are riots a really interesting interview with a jd williams who plays the incomparable Bodhi in the wire one of the things he said when he was there filming is that you come out of a club at 2am, there's a curfew, and then there's a line of riot cops clearing off the street with cable ties and truncheons, and if you don't move off, you're arrested. That doesn't sound that different from what's been going on at the moment. Mm. And I think that kind of continuity will really need to be emphasised. Mm. Adam? Um, uh, yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, I agree <coughs> with everything that's been said so far, definitely. I'm trying to think a little bit about these, this idea of white allies. Um, I think... <coughs> As with many forms of activism, pragmatism is really, really important. Um, But I guess there's a few kind of core things that kind of spring to mind immediately. The first is this idea that we live in a system in which white supremacy is the normal functioning of society, right? So therefore, if we just go about our daily lives and are just nice to people, we are still reproducing white supremacy. We have to actively challenge the day-to-day workings of society in order to undo it, right? So we have to have have less passivity. We have to have what we might term people who are race traitors, people who are traitors um, to um, this this construct that we call whiteness. 
The second is resource allocation. Um, this side, not not necessarily just economic resources, but social resources, right? So the fact that um, very often people who are racialized as white are, 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 have better access to um, things like accessing the press or accessing um, legal services or accessing lots of different forms of social and cultural capital that they can use in order to um, uh, to to kind of to, to take. Um, from the sense of power and to, dis- and to, and to redistribute um, to the communities affected by these forms of oppression. Um, of course, this has to be done with this. It has to be done in a kind of what f- can often feel like a contradictory way, um, because we have to ensure that despite the fact that white people um, ha- often have access to more resources, they, that doesn't lead to them um, taking the lead and taking the limelight in um, what is a black struggle. Um, and the other thing is that we have to ensure that. There's always a danger, um, and I thought that it wouldn't happen now that Obama's president, but it is still kind of happening in this idea that the problem is with white officers. We need more black officers. The problem is with black um, governors, the black heads of districts, had, had blacks, um, black heads of council. We need these black people to be um, heads of um, these kinds of institutions. And that is a real problem because it doesn't get to the core of the issue, which is the fact that these, these institutions have been set up principally to reproduce capitalism and to reproduce white supremacy. And um, so therefore... Go on, go on. So, um, and last little bit. Um, the final bit is, so therefore we have to ensure that there is both a race and class analysis mm. within, the, within, these, within um, uh, uh, the kinds of white allyship that we see. We have to ensure that just because you've got a black person at the head of a hierarchy doesn't mean that he's going to care about poor black people in the same way as a white person. Not in the same way, as, but we have to understand that there is a class dynamic within black communities as well. And therefore we have to ensure that finally... I know this is this can often be misinterpreted, so I really want to make sure I'm clear on this. Whiteness enslaves poor whites, but enslaves poor whites into a false consciousness, which which tells them they have more in common with Margaret Thatcher than they do with other working class people who are racialized in a different way to them. And it therefore is such a whiteness is such a counter revolutionary reactionary force that one of the best things that white, pe- white allies can do is go to white working class communities and teach them how whiteness enslaves them into such a false consciousness that they, that they might vote for an aristocrat to rule Britain for another four years than siding with people who might be racialised differently to them but are in many ways their class allies. Excellently said. Ash? Well, boom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think uh, just um, to add to what you were saying about, you know, this is also a class struggle as well as a race struggle. One of the things that Angela Davis says, which is, I think, incredibly useful, is that, well, when you're talking about class, you're always talking about race and gender and these other kinds of oppression. When you're talking about race, you're always talking about class and gender. And actually what we should be striving for is an integration of analysis and not just saying, well, we look at how these things stack up at the level of the individual. Um, You look at how these are historically and politically co-determined, they have an effect on each other all the time. Mm. Can, I, can I just say, building on, <clears throat> building on the point you made about... Excuse me. <clears throat> we've got some water. Building on a point you made about several minutes ago um, about what you said, Adam. Um, since Obama, obviously, the solution is more black leaders, quote-unquote, right? Yeah. I mean, this seems to me a, a, a key difference between Ferguson and Baltimore is that Ferguson seemed like the pre-Jim Crow American South, right? It was a black suburban area, black suburban Missouri, primarily policed, ruled over, led by white people. 
and it really looked like kind of um, uh, something kind of un- unresolved kind of uh, outgrowth of 1950s America, pre-1964 America, let's say. Difference with Baltimore is quite is quite significant, I think, in so much as you've got um, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake, Democrat. She won that mayoral election 82 percent against the Republican. I think the Republican got like 17 percent. That's a, that's an astonishing mandate, right? And there's a contentious street movement of people of color, you know, rioting on the streets. And she's a black Democrat in office on 82 percent. That tells you there's something severely wrong, not just with the Democrat Party, but with the electoral system in the United States in terms of representing working-class people of colour. So Mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake, black. The police commissioner, Anthony Batts, is black. They've been the most prominent face of political power in Baltimore over the last several weeks. Um, and that tells me that there's something different, maybe, between here and Ferguson. And it, I think it really brings home your point, Adam, about the solution cannot be, cannot be uh, people of colour, you know, in Congress, in the Senate. I think you've got... what Washington is 40 miles away from Baltimore, right? You've got something like... Uh, let me get the, the stats up on this. Um, let me get the stats up on this. Here we go. Yeah, 43 black members of Congress, two senators. That's the highest number of black Congress members in American history. Loretta Lynch just became the first black woman appointed as attorney general. And yet, in the last 18 months, you've seen... You know, again, it's been referred to as a second black civil rights movement. Some people say, well, this is adopting a very different tactical repertoire. Yes, but so did the black civil rights movement. Just nobody talks about it. Um, so that's quite instructive, right? And I think maybe we should talk about this for five, ten minutes because the ascent of Obama, look, I mean, I don't know, I mean, we all fell for it, right? We were like, this is pretty significant. I mean, it was, obviously, it was significant. It was a, an amazing achievement that an African American could take the White House. Um, but on, at a granular level, it doesn't seem to have changed very much in terms of race relations in the United States, does it? I'll start with you, Adam. You seem quite animated. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think this is something that this is something that Fanon was writing. To go back to Fanon, this is something he was writing about back in the 1960s, right? Um, in terms of neocolonialism, he talks about. He, he didn't even say that there became like an, an African bourgeoisie. He said they became. He said. They are. They, he said they are. A, a, I think they, he described them as a conniving class, which believes what they read in European textbooks, enjoys going to European nightclubs until they become not the mirror image of the European bourgeoisie, but their caricature. And I think we're seeing these similar patterns here within the, the centres of empire, but here within these internally colonised communities in in, um, in in the United States and to a lesser extent Britain as well. And so, in order to draw about draw out these contradictions, right between um, the the fact that black people are, are getting into positions of power, yet we're seeing white supremacy reproduced in, in many ways, in more intense ways than we've seen um, with white leadership, we're seeing a, a a reproduction of the same patterns of domination that we're seeing in places like Nigeria, that we're seeing in places like Kenya, that we're seeing in places like the Congo. And so I think in order to be able to understand effectively how this operates, we need to maintain this international perspective as to the way in which imperialism operates, both on both in places in the former colonies and in the centres of empire where we see these internally colonised populations as well. Well, yeah, um, I think I think we need to talk about um, talk about this in terms of liberalism. The 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 fact that there. Anyone with a liberal position, regardless of what their um, what the colour of their skin or their and, or their supposed class position um, is, uh, is an enemy to ra- toward radicalism. Uh, that they 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 function to um, turn radicalism into mere mediation with um, the white supremacy and capitalism. Um, 
So I think we need to, we need to talk about these uh, representatives who uh, 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 who these like black representatives elected to various positions who at one point might well um, have advocated radical and radical points of view, but as soon as they get into elected office, um, capitulate. And now I don't think that's a problem. That's necessarily a condition of getting into elected office. I think you can see um, where and instances where um, black leaders who have been elected um, uh, have done um, huge amount to change things in their community. Uh, Sharma Sawant, for instance, in Seattle. Yeah. Very recently, yeah. Um, there, there's this um, incredible uh, instance of um, it's uh, Betty McRae, who's elected um, mayor in uh, in a small Missouri town, uh, and the police, the police force, more than half of them um, walked off the job. Um, this and uh, and and have in, uh, more recently uh, like try, tr- set up a blockade in order to stop her from getting into uh, uh getting into the town hall so i think there's there's this the other element of the, the this uh, there's a form of racism in the us that just hasn't gone away mm. um that is that seems absolutely incredible um where where uh, where a police force could possibly do this, where a majority white police force that comes in from out of town could possibly do this to a, a, a black mayor who's been elected. Um, the 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 point about Ferguson and Baltimore and comparing because Ferguson has uh, the ele- elected officials all white, um, Baltimore, however, that 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 isn't the case. I, but I think that kind of goes to show, whilst of course there are differences. The um, if you have liberals in place in uh, elected office, the the same racism continues. This um, unaddressed, pernicious form of racism that leads to um, huge inequalities and unemployment uh, opportunities being completely uh, taken away from black communities in the US. Ash, I mean, why you have a difference in? Um political representation in Ferguson and Baltimore, you've got one thing which is really similar between them, which is uh, both are cities operating under tremendous financial strain in terms of the amount of funding they can put towards education, healthcare, housing, etc., etc., in terms of, um, uh, I guess, like taxpayer-based revenue. And a lot of that money is being recouped by fines for minor crimes and, you know traffic issues and stuff like that so what you've got is a financial incentive um which and financial incentives often have no color um to keep racism going and to keep racism policing going in both of these cities and i think in terms of um the demo the democrats and their attitude towards um their black voter base you've got hillary clinton you know, given quite a barnstorming speech about mm. how we can't let mass incarceration go on and we do have to change police violence, whereas her husband was responsible for a lot of mm. these policies in the first place. He was well behind the, stri- the three strikes rule, uh, expanded police force. Um, under him, the uh, black incarcerated population, I think, rose by 50%, which mm. is huge, which was even more than George, uh, the George Bush that came before him. Um, so I think that whenever we're trying to think of um, politicians and what do they owe 
certain communities, the thing to never forget as well, they're politicians and they made devil's bargains to get where they were. Mm. And they'll say anything. I mean, what's interesting for me is where the Democrat Party is right now because you've got, you know, John Stewart. He did a, it was a great show on this stuff, right, a couple of days ago. I've tweeted the link a few times. Very, very, very funny. And if you look, I mean, John Stewart for me is a good bellwether for the kind of left of the Democrat Party. Um, and he was just, he was on fire. And he's obviously got a more progressive position on this than the mayor. Like you rightly point out, Hillary, I think two days ago, she literally said this is being caused by... I mean, she's not going to talk about, obviously, economic deprivation. She's not going to talk about gentrification, uh, you know, deindustrialization, de in the 1970s and so on and so forth. But she did talk about the US penitentiary system and its relationship to what we saw in LA 1990, 91, St. Petersburg 96, Ferguson, Missouri last year. Now what we're seeing in Baltimore. Um, going back to John Stewart, and listeners, I would really recommend watching this. You don't get much John Stewart in the UK because it's blocked. It's a bit like, you know, the Chinese, Great Wall of China. You can't get Comedy Central content in the UK. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was like, you know, he, he was, uh, they pulled a bit of video from some Fox commentator and, you know, they're showing scenes of violence, quote unquote, in Baltimore. And he's going, I never thought I would see anything like this in the United States. And it's like, well, Detroit, Chicago, St. Petersburg, Los Angeles, Miami. You know, where, where do you want to begin, right? And then he pulled another piece of video, literally from last year. Same guy, talking about Ferguson. He said, I never thought I'd see anything like this in the United States. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> it wasn't even Fox News. It was CNN. Yeah. It was Wolf Blitzer on CNN. Wolf Blitzer, Michael, that's it. Wolf Blitzer, right? Which is just, I mean, it's, I was kind of incredulous, actually. And then John Shea goes, I'm, I'm worried for you, buddy. And it's kind of true, right? I mean, you're worried for somebody who's that kind of, has that, that inability to recollect what happened simply um, 12 months ago. So uh, black, fa- fa- black faces and high places, that's what it's been called. That hasn't worked. A lot of people, including The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, tweeted about the... Uh, tweeted about events again but it shows you where the centre of American politics is right now a lot of these people aren't saying this is violence you know they're saying this is justified but this isn't a solution I, I, I think it's fair to say we don't agree that a riot is a solution to the problem I think it can be justified it can be appropriate but it's not a, I mean obviously not a solution right? it's not going to end white supremacy unless it's an indefinite riot which became obviously an insurrection as in uh, Haiti. I don't even, even want to add to that. I mean, I don't know. Well, well, the first thing I want to say is, if we are going to have a revolution, we definitely need the rock on side. Number one, absolutely. Um, <laughs> absolutely. But I, the other thing I think, I think there's a couple of concerns I've got. One is that one of the things that these kinds of forms of civil unrest often do is form is is create the groundwork for a very reactionary state. Right. Mm. This, we saw this in the civil disturbances in 2011 in the United Kingdom. Um, and we see and we see this a great deal um, in many other parts of the world as well. And so we really need to make sure that the the actions that are being taken don't lead to this form of yeah this form of reactionary state repression where we see okay so this form of violence happens we need to increase um, prison sentences we need to you know make things far harsher and this new. Um, the first black female attorney general is pro death penalty. She's not very progressive at all when it comes to these kinds of policies. So we have to be really careful about that. And the other thing that really springs to mind again is to go back to the international, because I've been thinking about the kind of the revolutionary potential of any of the, any of the kind of movements that we've seen um, um, across um, North America and Europe, whether it be places like Greece, where a lot of violence has taken place, as well as as well as in the United States. And I feel like. Despite the excitement and you know the, the possibility for many of these movements, it's still likely that any kind of glint of a revolution is going to come from the global south. Whether it comes from Latin America, whether it comes from um, parts of um, East Asia, or or, um, or, 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 some, or somewhere else. And so, therefore, I think about 
what it what is it that we can do here in the global north to help to facilitate that those revolu- that revolutionary potential in many parts of the global south i think one of the best things that we can do is to disrupt the f- the governance of imperialism and to disrupt the flow of imperialist capital here within the center of empire and one of the ways in which we can do that is through civil disturbances we talk- we talked about it before about the ways in which um uh, civil disturbances, you know, stop the flow of capital and strikes and so on and so forth can be really effective in doing this. Obviously, strike action is far more difficult now that um, uh, many, many jobs have been atomized and the unions have been decimated and we see um, a lot of industrial labor um, uh, uh, flow to parts, parts of the global south where people can be exploited more, re- where people can be exploited more readily. But what we can still do is recognize that markets still exist here in the global north. This is where capital has to make its profits. This is where it has to sell things. And this is where this is where civil disobedience can come in and really, really disrupt the flows of capital in order to better facilitate any forms of resistance that are taking place in other parts of the global south. Ash, and, can I respond to that quickly? Sure. Then move to Ash. Because absolutely I agree with all of that, right? But if you're looking at in terms of, look, so the Global South, like you said, the stuff's made there, bought, purchased here, right? It's consumed here. That process has tied up with changes in the global political economy since the 1970s. But those same changes are precisely what undergird what we're seeing in Baltimore in so much as the creation of those surplus populations tend to be in places like Detroit, Maryland, people of colour. They've been destroyed twice, right? Once through deindustrialization, and then the second time through gentrification. So they've been destroyed twice, and that's the question. These service populations in the global north also exist. So this, this is my question, effectively, or a, 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 a retort. Maybe it's a question, maybe it's a statement. I don't know. <laughs> Which is, um, if you're a surplus population, if you're people of colour, capitalism in the global north, the United States, increasingly the UK, has no interest in you being able to reproduce your labour power or your life. So, I mean, on the one hand, civil systems absolutely necessary. On the other hand, you know, when I saw that woman uh, getting her masked up child, one of the very few young men who had made the wise decision to conceal their identity um, when that was happening, she dragged him out and people go, oh, what a muppet. Well, of course, on the one hand, yeah, it's kind of stupid what she's doing. She's also revealed his identity was also incredibly stupid. On the other hand, the last thing you need as a working class black person in Baltimore, Maryland, is a criminal record, right? So whilst you can applaud riots and you can say these are fantastic, this is politically necessary, it's a political symptom, and it's a, a agentive as well. It's agency. It's part of the solution. There's also the concern that if it's not tied into something that progresses, something that can be built upon, um, there's a problem. And that's why I was so I was very, very, very happy to see demands being issued in Ferguson. I think as soon as the second or third day uh, of the uprising there last year. Um, and so there's two two things there really. I think. Politics is necessary. Politicians are necessary. I'm not going to say you start getting more black faces in high places. And that's not the solution. But clearly, for social movements, for this second civil rights movement, as it's being called, for that to have autonomy, space, safety, keep activists out of jail, you're going to need some people in some high places to help you out. And I sometimes feel like people who are interested in social movements kind of just disregard that as if it's not necessary. You're going to need progressive judges. You're going to need progressive attorneys. You're going to need uh, progressive lawyers. You're going to need progressive politicians. Because alongside, I mean, that, to make that direct action possible, to give it the space, otherwise the state will just smash it, right? Is that a fair assessment, Adam? Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I. Um, as I said before, pragmatism is really, really important. I guess I maybe touched upon this a little bit when I thought about white allies. Um, but and I guess there's a couple of things. The first one is that 
in the global north, generally, the state has a monopoly on violence, right? Um, whereas in the global south, the state doesn't have a monopoly on violence, which um, in, in, in many ways, which really creates space for revolutionary potential, which we need to think about. And I guess the second thing is what, what you said about um, the importance of having um, greater political context, understanding, direction, if, if I'm interpreting you correctly. Um, I completely agree with you as well. Um, and I think one of the ways in which this can be made really powerful is in understanding the international perspective in which these civil disturbances are taking place. So, of course, they're taking place in like a, on a regional level and a national level as well, where, of course, we need um, access to good lawyers and access to um, progressive politicians and access to progressive sections of the press and so on and so forth in, 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 a, in a purely pragmatic way. Um, I think the, the Black Panthers call this survival pending revolution, right? We need to make sure that, you know, people aren't simply languishing in prisons in such enormous numbers and so on and so forth. But the other thing is that in order to, in order to, in order for the, for, to really realise the kind of revolutionary potential, again, something the Black Panther Party talks about a lot as well, is understanding the international perspective in which the international context in which these civil disturbances mm-hmm. are operating and where um, African where people in the global north stand in, ter- in, in relation to that and the power that they have as being it in part of the centre of empire and being able to disrupt the functioning of the centre of empire in order to be able to better facilitate any kind of revolutionary potential on a global scale. Um, yeah, I'm again inclined to agree. I'd just like to say about that um, image of the uh, woman dragging her son off the street. My mum's incredibly supportive of um, uh, confrontational direct action. My mum would do the same thing. Like, I'm not sure if you've ever seen a Bengali woman with a slipper, but she would hit me with that slipper. Um, and I think part of it, uh, I think the more interesting thing rather than the image itself is the currency that it's had. And I think it says something about, in particular, white America, which is, oh, look, he's being beaten up by his mum. You're not that scary. And it's a way of taking the sting out Mm. of incredibly significant um, mass social action. Um, I think the other image which was circulated an awful lot was uh, a young black boy handing out bottled water to um, a riot cop who's sort of looking impassively down on him. And I think um, these images are incredibly significant because of what do they say about the white supremacist society in which we live, that these are the images that we want to consume and these are the ones that we want to say are somehow telling of, um, I guess, race relations in America. And it's interesting to me that uh, during the Ferguson riots, the image that was circulated was of a uh, white police officer hugging a black child. And the message there is you know, uh, look, not all police officers are bad. But when an image is circulated of a black child handing out bottled water to a police officer, the message there is, look, not all black children are bad, not all black people are bad. Look, they want to help you, they want to serve you. Um, The Guardian art guy whose name escapes me for now... Jordan Jones? Yeah, he's the one. Um, He said, you know, the Ferguson hug picture was the equivalent of uh, locking yourself in your house while the streets burn outside and mm. weeping to frozen. I'd say the bottled water picture is the equivalent of locking yourself in the house and watching Gone with the Wind and going, oh, that seems refreshing, doesn't it? Um, so I, I think there's something really significant in the image that you were talking about. Mm. And uh, I think the kind of culture industry around writing is something which really could be explored more. Would you like to add to that? We've got just... We, hold that thought, right? Because we've got... 15 minutes. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar, Well Kasim, Adam Cooper. We're discussing recent events in Baltimore, the political 
uses, advantages, history of violence in social movements, contentious politics. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah, just to add to this woman who collected her child off the streets, she was actually quoted as saying, I took him, I picked him up because I didn't want my son to be another Freddie Gray, which seems a perfectly legitimate concern, right? Mm. If your young black son is going toe-to-toe with the police uh, and they're in riot gear. Well, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, well... Just on that on that last point, there's the there's the um, other image of the um, young young African American boy who um, is using a traffic comb to destroy the front uh, the front winch, uh, windscreen of the um, police car. I think it is, or it might just have been a normal car, but I think it was a police car. Um, who is uh, who's who is um, who is now in jail? Um, with a bail bond of uh, $500,000. Um, and this is because his um, stepfather encouraged him to hand himself in. Um, and this is, this, is an, um, this is something that we remember happening uh, here in the UK during the riots um, and just after the riots with families encouraging members to go and hand themselves into the police um, for fear of... Um, greater retribution if they don't do so but i think this this is incredibly sad right that this he, this guy is now in jail he can't get bail because his family there's no way they can afford half a million dollars um and he's probably not going to get any more more lenient a sentence than he would have done if he hadn't handed himself in um but there but there's a there's a kind of um Mentality. I don't really like that word, but kind of a way of thinking that and suggests that the the state um, isn't entirely against you. You you you've done if you you've done something wrong, and therefore you uh, you you have to take part in the judicial process um, that follows that in order to in, in in order to make amends. And this is just wrong, and it's really sad that. Um, people uh, are thinking in this way um i just i wanted to make explicit something that aaron um alluded to about about surplus population right and i think it um i think it links into what adam and ash were saying um we are in a position where um, populations in the global south but also po- and populations in the global north uh in western states are absolutely superfluous to the needs of capital in fact they're a hindrance states don't know what to do with large and large amounts of their um of their population uh, and so are more than willing for people to die and this is the same uh logic that um leads to uh wars of imperialism across the world that lead to millions of deaths um but uh but but who cares about those lives? It's the same thing that leads to um, people not caring about the deaths of young uh, uh, of black people um, um, at the hands of the police here in the West. It's, it's it's it leads to people not caring when people die of hunger and poverty, um, both here in the West and uh, across the world. And that's that to me. This is the central thing that we should be organizing around at the moment this is the ho- this is what black lives matter should be talking about this uh the fact that they don't want us alive to be quite honest uh and 
and so we have to fight for life and people are struggling for life if you watch the videos of people in baltimore at the moment they and and, and where where press have um caught some people uh and have like talking into the camera these are people who are basically saying that they've not been allowed to live and that what they're fighting for is being allowed to live i think this kind of vitalist uh strain is incredibly important for us to be organizing around well, I mean, just quickly about um, surplus population, specifically in the United States. I mean, the American South, after the American Civil War, Reconstruction, these people were no longer slaves. They were no longer able to exploit them in a manner which um, in, was integrate, you know, really integrated in terms of the southern economy. It was an agrarian, slave-based economy. Reconstruction, you have millions of African-Americans, blacks, been emancipated, and they go, what the hell do we do with these people, right? I mean, this is a, a key thing. And that question has never really been answered in the United States with regards to a surplus black population in the 19... Between, you know, between the Reconstruction and between uh, the, the crisis of Fordist capitalism in the 1960s, many of these people went north. They got jobs in places like Detroit, Chicago, New York. And then with that huge crisis of capitalism, Fordist capitalism in the 60s, 70s, you know, of course, these are the first people to suffer. I want to get back to you, Ash, about the cultural industry and rioting and colour. A few statistics, though, about what's going on in Baltimore, Maryland. Freddie Gray's Sandtown neighbourhood. Population is 96.6% African-American. Joblessness stands at 24%. That's around the same as it is for Bangladesh, who's incidentally in the UK. Um, uh, more than half the households had of a median income, so the average income, of less than $25,000. That's under half the US average and around a third the average for the state of Maryland, which is $72,000. In the Santan neighbourhood, that same neighbourhood, 34.3% of homes are vacant, like you said, Ash, whereas in the Inner Harbour Federal Hill, one of the most kind of economically successful wealthy parts of Baltimore 79.5% white the number is 0.5% black youth unemployment uh, 37% in 2013 amongst 20 to 24 year olds and the kind of historical context for all of this we've talked this about this on the show a few times the GI Bill uh, the inability of African Americans to access credit to buy a house college loans uh, you know start a business um, that was something that was given to whites basically it was their NHS after the second world war for working class white Americans um, they get it again after Korea they get it again after Vietnam hugely racialized policy from 1951 to 1971 80 to 90% of the 25,000 families displaced in Baltimore to build new highway schools and housing projects were black Right. So when we talk about the state infrastructure, the needs of capital, the needs of the, yeah, the capital, the capital to make returns, to reproduce uh, the labor power of the working class. It's about nailing black people, people of color. And hey, we're not far from the Haygate estate. Right. We're not far from the Aylesbury estate. And the exact same story holds true there as well. So I think, yeah, building these bridges, not just in terms of what's happening in terms of the fight back in terms of the struggle in the here and now, but also where this oppression comes from and how it's intimately tied into the history of capitalist production and how it's sought to uh, not just legitimise itself but also reproduce itself at the structural economic level. So, Ash, culture industry, riots. This is something that you've studied in quite a bit of detail, I think, right? Yeah, one of the things I'm really interested in is how do we remember um, periods of social unrest and how do novels, films, music engage with this? Because you might not be able to recall 
you know, in a great amount of detail, late 1980s race relations in America. But you can remember and do the right thing, that final scene of the trash can going through the window of Sal's pizzeria. Um, and I think these things have a currency and they're incredibly important. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that in America at the moment, one of the biggest film franchises is, is the Hunger Games, right? It's all about civil disobedience, violence and overturning an exploitative authoritarian state whereas at the same time and in the same breath the people who bloody love those films will be decrying the people in the streets of Baltimore mm. as thugs criminals mindless looting this that and the other and I think you've got this real um, kind of cultural dissonance mm. of a celebration of the aesthetics of this kind of social unrest and an absolute condemnation of the politics and social context that they come from and i I think that's a really interesting thing, and you're going to see that contradiction and hypocrisy grow over the next few years, I think. Well, paradigmatic example of Baltimore was The Wire, right? Mm. You've got all these wire, wire fans, fanatics, white people, they go, I've got all the box sets, it's so gritty and realistic. And then they're kind of like, what the hell? Why would you smash up a store? Well, cultural industry riots, how these are remembered in terms of the cultural artefacts of the period. What are your thoughts? Well, um, I, I I kind of want to mention something that you put in the notes for the show. Um, uh, the this film, uh, The Purge, wherein you uh, you have uh, I think is it once a year you have a day where law is suspended uh, and you can do what you like. Um, and the I think there was a sequel to the film which had much more. Uh, uh, of a battle between people and the police, um, which is quite interesting to see. But the, I think the, the central idea of this film is absolutely remarkable. It's, expre- it's expressing the fact that the law, as we know it, has an inside and an outside. The law is about um, uh, the, what, what, is, what kind of violence is legitimate, but also the, the fact that to maintain the status quo, to maintain the rule of law, you need this kind of like pressure valve uh, of and of um, and this this pressure valve of kind of um, the law the law not being able to hold sway over people. And I think that's kind of interesting connection between what the, these uprisings that we are seeing because the the. Um, they happen with like some regularity. They have a, a, a th- the um, yeah, they happen with some regularity in the UK. It's perhaps uh, slightly different. Um, the kind of, and how how often these riots happen. In Baltimore, the last um, the last big riot I think was um, sixty eight. Um, but the. the these these moment these are moments where people uh, find themselves to be free of the law. This is why they they snowball into such big action when when uh, when people see that uh, they they can for a while get away with um, opposing the state in uh, in in uh, in the most stark terms. I, th- I think that's the, the quite a, quite an interesting concept. I think important this like pressure valve within the state and the rule of law. Mm. Adam. Um, I think this tells us something really interesting about neoliberalism <coughs> as well, um, because I think before, before um, neoliberalism and the kind of sophistication of like this kind of the um, the uh, the commodification of culture in the way that we understand it today, what generally had to happen was a repression of all of the of the memory of all of these types of things. So we, so history is taught to us as this long history of moral epiphanies by those in power. We think about like the abolition of enslavement. We talk we it's we're taught about it as this moral epiphany that took place by those in power, but. All we need to do is 
number one, we can read the slave narratives of resistance. We can read those kind of narratives. Or on a really empirical level, we can look at how expensive fire insurance was for plantations in the south during the period of in, in the 18th century it went up and up and up until eventually they couldn't get insurance for their plantations at all when it came to fire insurance and the, or, and but what we see is a repression of these memories i mean same way we see a repression of the memories of um the uh, the the uh, uprisings in jamaica in the, at the end of the in the 19th century where people's heads were put on poles or we see the repression of the memory of the amama uprising in kenya where people put were put in concentration camps by the british after world war 2 we see the repression of the kind of the memory of what took place in india if you were a dissident you had your forehead tattooed um, so that people could monitor you and those types of things. But what we see under neoliberalism, instead of a repression of these memories, we see a co-optation of these types of memories. What neoliberalism does very often is it consumes and resells the resistance of oppression as a distance fantasy rather than something that is a reflective of a reality that we can learn from and grow from. That's a wonderful way to finish the show. We could do this for another hour. Thank you so much. Very grateful. Ash... Adam Welkasim. My name's Aaron Bastani, this is Navarra FM. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.